The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. I haven't been here in quite a few years, as I can tell by my bio. Yeah, lots of memories. And I got a chance to practice pretty hardcore driving here. I live in Oakland, and my partner was making me a smoothie, and she was trying to put in kale and broccoli and all this stuff, and I'm like, babe, I gotta go, babe. She's like, no, no, this is good for you. And then I needed gas, and then I got off of two wrong highways, and then there was a train on Arguello. I was like, wow, this is wild. (laughs) I want to go talk about how to be kind. And uh, I walked in the door at 7.31. That's a minute late. And spent half the meditation letting go of any guilt or any any uh, residue from that. But it literally probably took me 15 minutes to just allow my nervous system to calm down you know, and arrive, actually. Yeah. Interesting. I got a thing about time. I like to be on time. I uh, wanted to do a talk tonight with uh, what I've been working with for the last... I don't know, a couple years. Anybody find themselves in uh, the judgment aspect of practice tonight? Maybe it just course through you. Anybody, yeah? A few people come into contact with some judgment? I should say notice some judgment because I think we all had it. The people that raised their hands are the ones that noticed it. But we see rather quickly that this is an internal landscape that we're practicing in, at least something that we pass through at least um, to varying degrees. All of us have to deal with judgment. Hmm. So that's kind of what I wanted to explore tonight. How do we work with it? We all have these lists in our minds of uh, if only, you know, if, uh, if maybe I look different or if I had more money or if I found the right partner or whatever it is, you know. We have these running lists. And then we come to practice. Right? We, we find the practice and we're off and running. And my understanding of the practice is simply put, to to love what is. And I remember sitting down when I first came to practice. I'm like, okay, love what is, okay. I'm on it, man. I'm all over it. I'm going to love what is, you know. And then I was like, hold up, hold up. Before before I do that, um, I got this pain in my back. I got this noisy neighbor over here, and I can't stop thinking. So let's let's just knock out those things. And then I'm totally going to love what is. <laughs> and they were trying to point this. It seems so subtle. They're like, no, 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 no. Love that. And I'm like, that's not even a thing. That's just what's in the way. You mean love that? Hmm. 
So the practice isn't what I thought it was going to be. Thank God. So this practice of opening, continually opening to, to what's present, to what is alive. Because the mind has an amazing ability to turn any moment into suffering. This is what I see in my mind anyway. Uh, the words of Jonathan Foyer, he writes, Sometimes I can hear my bones straining under the w- weight of all the lives I'm not living. So we have this practice of uh, watching this river of thought, of memory, of story. We watch it come and go, right? This river of dialogue, this internal dialogue that we're all in all the time. Kind of like asking a fish to wake up that they're swimming in water, right? And uh, one of my first teachers... She's told me to, uh, you know, it was like my first week. And I says, all right, I'm ready. Give it to me. Give it to me straight. What do you want me to focus on here? Because, you know, I'm really going to do it. And she said, just let go, you know. And I says, okay. following week, I came back. I said, I'm ready for some further instructions. <laughs> and I noticed... I mean, first she she laughed at me, and she told me come back in five years and she'd give me some more instructions. <laughs> I was pretty sure she just hadn't had such an advanced student. <laughs> but since the teacher resumes weren't pouring in, I went back, you know. <laughs> but this let it go, it really it tripped me up for a while because I would notice things. And I would let them go, and they would not go anywhere. (laughs) And there was a sense of urgency, of just leaning toward when they would go. Almost as if I was trying to outsmart suffering. Very funny. (laughs) I see in pictures a lot, in images. And I started seeing myself as a bouncer. Not a lot of five foot seven bouncers, but this is how I was practicing. And uh, I was a bouncer at this club, and the club was basically existence. And I was, you know, standing there at the velvet rope, and I would allow things into existence or, or stop them and say, no, you're not allowed in here, right? There was a lot of parts of myself that I wouldn't allow into existence. I didn't understand that if I allowed them into existence, they would become part of all that is, and therefore subject to the same laws of impermanence as everything else. I didn't understand that if I let something live, then it ultimately would die. But if I just kept it underwater like a a beach ball and say, I'm not angry, no, I'm not. Don't ever say I am, because I'm not angry. Right? And what I'm literally pushing away, these, these parts of myself that I just couldn't be with, were actually defining me. So strange, the paradox of that. 
I started seeing all of these parts of myself. And I would just put them in two categories. What's loved and what's longing to be loved. And in this way, I started, I, I became uh, just open to perhaps these things that I didn't, uh, that I rejected about myself. Is this making sense? Once we can admit, yes, that too, yeah, this belongs too. Once we don't have to reject any part of our experience, these things have a way of working themselves out to let them run their natural course. Otherwise, they continue to resurface in our relationships, uh, the way we treat ourselves, our, our children. These things have a way of coming out. There's a, you know, like I said in the beginning, there's a certain way that we all deal with this to some degree or another. Some people feel like they're at war with themselves. Other people feel like this is only a, not such a big deal for them. So wherever this is true for you, listen from that place. There's a real common, uh, there's a bunch of different, there's a few different types in the Buddhist cosmology about uh, how we experience the world. I'm an, an aversive type. So generally speaking, when I walk into a room, I see what's wrong with it. There's greed types and there's delusional types, but I'm the aversive type. So generally speaking, there's a, a way that I, in almost any moment, there's always something wrong. It's kind of bright in here. <laughs> so when I come into practice, I carry that with me. What is wrong with this moment, with the world, um, with these thoughts, with the practice, whatever it is. And I started feeling worse than ever. You know when you first come to practice? And, and they had told me, look man, this is a lot like a backed up toilet. In your case. <laughs> and I found this, this little writing by Archbishop Fenelon. It helped me a bit to understand why things might get worse. He says, he writes, As the light increases, we see ourselves to be worse than we thought. We're amazed at our former blindness, as we see, issuing forth from the depths of our heart, a whole swarm of shameful feelings. Like filthy reptiles crawling from a hidden cave, we could have never believed we had harbored such things. And we stand aghast as we watch them gradually appear. But we must neither be amazed nor disheartened. We are not worse than we were. On the contrary, we're better. While our faults diminish, the light by which we see them waxes brighter, and we are filled with horror. Bear in mind for your comfort that we only perceive our malady when the cure begins. 
It gave me great hope that I wasn't getting worse. It gave me a way to understand that what Nisargadatta said, he said it's it's only when you realize that you're a prisoner of the mind that you live in an imaginary world of your own creation. That's the dawn of wisdom. So first you got to wake up in prison. But back to what the Archbishop is pointing at. This, this clearer seeing can be more ammunition for our inner critic of what's wrong. And to see through these thoughts and reactions can be extremely difficult. This, I'll just speak from my experience. It cut right to my feelings of uh, worth and even my value as a human being. It was hard to not identify with these personal attacks because I've heard them for so long. You know, they started in my family and who knows how many generations they go back. You know, it was a certain point that I even questioned my own right to live. You know, I didn't get the love I needed from my house. And I thought for some reason that was my fault. When my father went back to prison at 10 years old, I thought it was my fault. When my mom passed away, I was 17, I came in the door. That must have been my fault. Right? So there's a way that uh, we personalize everything that's happening as uh, our fault sometimes. This endless violence of how we should be. Uh, William James writes, this ceaseless frenzy of always thinking we should be doing something else. This unnourishing drive I mean you can oh you know this voice this inner critic that I'm talking about you can always notice it because the tone is without love or grace so it's easy to get caught up in this endless becoming you know I'm I'm doing a workshop and I'm on a fast and um, you know there's nothing wrong with these things but it's all based in this paradigm where someday I'm going to be enough if we just work hard enough and we drop that weight and we really become successful or we meet that special someone then it's on everything I'm doing now is in preparation for then I mean, this is cool, but it's about to be on, right around that corner. Like I said, we get introduced to practice, and the next thing you know is we just superimpose that same nagging violence onto our self-improvement laundry list. And now it sounds like once I find a teacher, or once I find my, my sangha, or the practice that really resonates with me, 
then I'm seriously going to be peace. Right now I'm just kind of kicking tires, you know. I see it in my head like a montage where every day I'm getting a little bit better at meditating and I'm becoming a better teacher, a better student, you know. And in the movie of my life, my future imagined self, as I explore that, because I've had a long time to imagine that self, he's a little bit taller, my skin's a little nicer, you know? I got more hair. It's crazy, man. Imagine thinking that practice will lead you to have more hair. <laughs> I mean, this is, this, is, this is the madness. The mind is so shameless. All this is based on this idea that somehow, you know, what's happening right now is not enough. It's not working. I'm not getting it. We reflect on everything in our lives that we didn't get, whether it was the love or the family or the job or the relationship, whatever it is. And then we wonder why we don't want to sit when sitting represents just another failure. And we see the mind is fundamentally not at rest. It's continually, you know, on the run. If only, right, this, this idea, if only I could get it, if only I could get that third jhana, or if only I could get ten days to just go on retreat, it takes us away from the only moment that freedom is possible, which is now, right? Each moment literally pregnant with liberation. And we're saying, no, 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 you're not going to deliver now. I got, I got some stuff to get ready first. It's like uh, I was recently, we were looking for movies on Netflix and sometimes that's how I, I imagine it in my meditations where I'm just browsing categories of discontent. <laughs> endless, endless, unfulfilling. And, and there's still something in us that's just driving. We're like, man, if we just tried a little bit harder, we're so close. If we could just go a bit further. But we never actually get there because... This is the acquisition mind. As long as meditation or practice, however you define it, becomes another pursuit, it'll feel like a failure. This is not something to get good at. Once we let go that we'll never be good at this, this is the beginning of some, uh, some progress. Now, try to not trick yourself into doing that, Right? Meditation, the way I experience it, is a, is a refuge from all of that, all that evaluation. It's not another arena for self-judgment, self-assessment. We have enough of those places in our lives. It's like falling asleep. You can't try harder to fall asleep, right? Just sleep 
happens. Hmm. So practice for me becomes about, uh, you know, I've always had this this d- debate going on whether I was a good person or not. Maybe it sounds different in your mind, whether you're lovable, whether you're a good person, whatever the debate is, we all, uh, am I right or wrong, right? Practice is calling time out on the whole debate and saying, now I arrive. In whatever shape I'm in, however I look, however old I am, however young I am, I get to arrive. This is where we get to see the power of the mind and where we incline the mind. What do we focus on becomes larger. So if we find ourselves in this deep groove in our patterned mind, it's like this hamster wheel of obsessive thought. We can call it samsara, but it's a habit, this this obsessive thinking. Uh, Jonathan Foyer, again, he writes, I've thought myself out of happiness a million times and never once into it. So the practice is getting off the wheel, not turning the practice into another wheel, because this is just another place where we can do that. Boy, I was lost, but this meditation wheel is so much nicer, right? We can be on this wheel our whole lives. Always on our way somewhere and never arriving. Endlessly unfulfilled. This is why the practice for me, well, I let Thomas Merton say it. He says it so beautifully. He said, what can we gain by sailing to the moon if we're not able to cross the abyss that separates us from ourselves? This is the most important of all voyages of discovery. And without it, all the rest are not only useless, but disastrous. Mm. This practice of arriving, of saying, you know what, uh, I've been involved in a in a game I'm running down on myself, right? And that game is that I think some other moment is going to hold what this one doesn't. So whenever I find myself in that lie, I know what I got to do. It's changed over the course of my life. You know, when I was a kid, it was, I can't wait to get out of this house. Then it was, I can't wait to get out of jail. Then it was, I can't wait to get a car, to get a job whatever it was, to get married, to get divorced, right? It all happened. It was always right around the corner. 
then it was going to be on. Even here. Like, man, once I do Gil's group, all right, man, then I'll relax. Crazy. Insidious the mind. I imagine the Buddha driving a car. I drive a lowrider. I imagine him driving the lowrider and I'm in the back. Are we almost here yet? You know? We're close, man. I never realized I was creating my own suffering. I always thought it was the conditions of my life, not me, not the way I'm understanding it or holding it. I'll give you one more picture of mm, the practice for me. is It's like this coming home. And my home wasn't really a, a friendly place. But there's something about the home I have now. And you know the feeling when you just had a hard day or a hard week or a hard incarnation? <laughs> And you walk in your door and you're just like, and you let out that deep sigh that you just get to be. That's what it feels like now to practice. It feels like, wow. I don't remember leaving the house. But here I am walking in the door again. And it's a, it's a feeling of rest and uh, nourishment. Now, if I walked in the house and the first thing I thought was, man, I really got to clean this place up. I, I should really remodel this whole thing. Have I arrived? So that moment of wakefulness that we find ourselves in when we're like, oh, Man, I'm supposed to be meditating this whole time, okay? You know, we're like 10 minutes down the river of thought, right? This is a beautiful moment of wakefulness. But if we meet it with judgment, we're totally missing the point. You haven't gone to sleep. You just woke up. There's nothing wrong. If that actually wasn't happening, there actually might be something wrong. But this is the very natural process of forgetting and remembering. And when we remember, wow, welcome home. You're here again. Nice to see you. Come on in. Take your shoes off. Make yourself at home in the present moment. We've been waiting for you. Dana Folds writes, why, why wait for your awakening? The moment your eyes are open, seize the day. Would you hold back when the beloved beckons? Would you deliver your litany of sins like a child's collection of seashells, prized and labeled? No, no, I can't cross the threshold, you say, eyes downcast. I'm not worthy. I'm afraid. My motives aren't pure. I'm not perfect, and surely I haven't practiced enough. My meditations aren't deep, and my prayers are sometimes insincere. I still chew my fingernails, and my refrigerator isn't clean. Do you value your reasons for staying small, more than the light shining through the open door? Forgive yourself. Now is the only time you have to be whole. Now is the sole moment that live, 
that exists to live in the light of your true self. Perfection is not a prerequisite for anything but pain. Please, oh please, don't continue to believe in your stories of separation and failure. This is the day of your awakening. When I give instructions for meditation, I usually add this instruction of, uh, you can't do it wrong. It's a controversial instruction that I'm sure some of my teachers would take issue with. But I don't care. Because I feel like the freedom that gives you to just be, to stop, is worth the price of admission. I mean, we get so strung out on expansion. Any moment of contraction is met with judgment. Can you imagine this? Can you imagine if all you could take was was in-breaths? You know? So how do we work with this energy when it arises? There's a couple of things. Um, how do we see thought as thought? How do we see thought as thought? You know, this is all that's happening is that there's thoughts. When we can see this clearly, then uh, it's not a problem. But we don't want to mistake this idea that just because a thought is only a thought, um, that's not a reason to dismiss it. Because there's something in it for us. What I, I think would be helpful, what was helpful to me, is when I saw the thought as a thought, and then allowed myself to feel the pain of that thought, of this judgment, of this unfulfilling, uh, endless becoming. When I allowed myself to feel that, that's when the compassion arose. That's when I was able to feel it with, uh, with the kindness and the love and the care that I would if I had a little boy or a little girl, you know, if I had a child and they had these wild thoughts, how I might comfort them, how I might care for them, how gentle I would be. I wouldn't scream at them. I wouldn't tell them they were wrong for having it. I would tend with kindness, right? We don't have to prove these thoughts are wrong or defend against them. They're only thoughts. So how do we use them for what they're good for? Which is to see 
the pain of being at war with ourselves or how we talk to ourselves, the tone. And if that tone is painful, to allow ourselves to feel it so that compassion can arise. Because that's how compassion works. Compassion works when we come into contact with something that's painful and we apply mindfulness and care to it. Naturally, what arises is compassion. But we all want the compassion, but we don't want to feel the pain. Right? That's where we get off the bus. It's like, wow. Anybody that tells me they're having problems developing compassion, I wonder if they've tended to their pain with that kind of care and attention. Just just seeing, the, just the idea of that these are just thoughts uh, takes some of the power away. The only way illusion works is if we mistake it for reality. You know, it's like being at an IMAX theater and thinking you're in the movie. And it's just like, no, no, just back up a little bit and check out this hell of other people here. This is not the story of your life, right? These are just thoughts. I used to experience thoughts as some commandment. Like, this is just true. I thought it. So we shift to direct experience. We keep touching in to these touch points. I can feel my knees are starting to get stiff because I usually sit in a chair, right? This is like... um, How do we keep coming back to what's actually happening out of the phantom world of the mind and the thoughts and all of this stuff? How do we keep touching into direct experience? How do we not give thoughts the authority to disturb us? It doesn't matter how that meditation was for you the last 45 minutes of sitting. If you had 10,000 thoughts or 15 thoughts, that has nothing to do with whether it was a successful meditation or not. The way I hold it is, how, how gentle was I? How kind was I to whatever arose? If there was lots of thoughts, I got a lot of practice. If there wasn't that many thoughts, I just got the rest in that kindness, in that awareness. Not rejecting any part of our experience. Pesci Joyce Gertler writes, Finally, on my way to yes, I bump into all the places where I said no to my life. Finally, on my way to yes, I bump into all the places where I said no to my life. All the untended wounds, the red and purple scars, those hieroglyphs of pain carved into my skin, my bones, those coded messages that sent me down the wrong streets again and again. And where I find them, the old wounds, the old misdirections, and I lift them one by one close to my heart, and I say, holy, holy. So this is a plea from me to not be too hard on yourself. To give yourself a break, lower your standards. 
promise you, you won't regret it. <laughs> I've been trying to talk people into lowering their standards for years. You cannot hate yourself into becoming enlightened. You can't. My family would be completely enlightened if that was true. <laughs> so we have to befriend ourselves. Yeah, just notice if there's any time that you're using the practice as a way to beat yourself up. And let that go. Let that be. Letting the moment of awareness solicit you. And in that, in that beautiful moment of wakefulness we we're talking about, not throwing it into reverse to evaluate your performance anxiety. How was I? Was I a good meditator? To allow things just as they are. I'm going to give you one more poem because I'm, uh, I love poems. It's so strange that I love poems. It's so strange. I mean, I literally dropped out in eighth grade, never read, never did an ounce of homework, never done anything, never went back to school, none of that stuff. And here I am, loving poems. Unbelievable. The time will come when, with elation, you will greet yourself arriving at your own door, in your own mirror, and each will smile at the other's welcome and say, sit here, eat. You will love again the stranger who was yourself. Give wine, give bread, give back your heart to itself, to the stranger who has loved you all your life, whom you'd ignored for another, who knows you by heart. Take down the love, letter, love letters from the bookshelf, the photographs, the desperate notes. Peel your own image from the mirror. Sit and feast on your life. The thing I love about that poem is he's, he's obviously talking about homecoming. He's talking about homecoming. And you know what can't exist? You know where alienation, exile, has to exist for us to come home. So I become grateful for my own restlessness inside, my, my own comfort, my anxiety, all the things that have driven me running into the arms of the Dharma. That's what I hear in that. that sent me on a mission to this very moment. To be spiritual is to stop trying to be spiritual. Stop trying to be some second version, open-hearted version of yourself, because that's not real. To open to your heart, to who and how you are right now, this, this is the path that we're on. If you found these words helpful, beautiful. If you didn't, discard them. Please. Uh, I, I think that your attention and your time are, are great gifts. And I hope I haven't wasted one of them. How do y'all usually end, Jim? Good?
Oh, yeah, I'm cool. I'm just chilling. Thank you. Thank you.